I was thinking this week, and maybe you, maybe you agree, I don't know. But I'm convinced that the only measure for greatness when it comes to our world, our community, wherever you may live or have lived, and I, and I think largely as it comes to the church and Christians and just people in general, the only measure of greatness is the ladder and where you stand on it. Tell me if I'm wrong, but, but think about your life. Maybe you look back and you're now retired, or maybe you're right in the middle of your work life, or you're just beginning, or that's still ahead of you, or, or you're just in some sport, or you're in school, or you're in some organization, or whatever it may be. But I, I would venture to say that you and I would have a lengthy argument if you disagreed with me on this, because I would, I would say that the measure for greatness in any organization, in any line of work, in your family, in the sports you may have played or playing now, in your school, with grades, the whole deal. The only measure for greatness, by and large, is the ladder and where you stand on it. I remember when I was getting out of college several years ago, and the friends that I graduated with, we sort of had our work lives ahead of us. And our goal was to climb the ladder. When I got out of school, I was way, way, way down here. I had a piece of paper to hang on the wall. That was it. And a lot of ideas that I thought were really great that I really didn't know about. You've been there? But my goal was to climb the ladder. So I got a job. And I took a little step up because finally I could make some money. And I had never had any money before. Not that it was addressed to me anyway. It always went to my parents. You know, I, that was my first real job when I got out of college. It was great. And my goal was to climb the ladder in such a way that I could then be in, in education and in coaching baseball that I could be a head baseball coach somewhere. But not just anywhere. Because, you see, I had played at a program in Louisville that was at the top as far as it goes in Kentucky. And my goal was not just to be the head coach of some little program out in the state somewhere that never won anything. My goal was to be the head coach at my alma mater. And that was why I went back there. I got a job there. And about two years later, I took a little another step up because... I became the right-hand man to the head coach. I thought, I'm one step away. I'm one breath away from being the head coach. Boy, if he retires, if anything happens to him, if he can't be there one game, and I even got to be the head coach for a couple of games. I was, I was impressed. I'm 2-0, and oh, just so you know. <clears throat> it was amazing. I got to step up the ladder. And, 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 and over time, it became clear that, you know what, that's, that's what I want. I'm going to climb that ladder. Maybe your line of work wasn't education and it wasn't coaching baseball. Maybe your line of work was something different. You start at the bottom and, well, you, you tried to climb. And you know, the, the thing, though, that, that, that's true about the ladder that I've realized, I can't stand the ladder. Maybe you're the same way. I know for some of our retired folks, so you look back and you just think, golly, I wasted a lot of time trying to climb that stupid ladder. I wasted a lot of energy, a lot of effort. I, I, I made a lot of people mad. I, I ruined a lot of relationships by trying to climb the ladder. Or, or you know what, there, there, was always, there was always something. I, I look up the ladder, and I see people that are higher up than me, and they're making more money. They've got a better job. They've got a corner office with windows. They've got all the stuff. They drive a nicer car. They live in a nicer home. They've got all the stuff that I want, and they're higher up the ladder. So, well, let me, let me keep climbing. But, you know, if I look down the ladder... There's somebody down there that's not quite as good as me, so I'm, I'm okay. You know, when it comes down to it, a lot of us spend our lives 
trying to be somewhere on the ladder that we feel comfortable with that still gives us a chance to sort of move up, but we're not quite on the bottom anymore. You know, the question we ask a lot of people when they get a job is, well, is, is there room for advancement? You know, hey, can you, can you move up? I mean, isn't that the question we ask? I don't know. If, I mean, I ask that question to people all the time, and I just think, well, what's that? why is that the first question? Why is the first question not, hey, are you okay with who you are if you never move up the ladder? Well, wouldn't that be a better question? Because there's no guarantee that we'll move up. I can't stand the ladder. And I'll be honest with you that the older I get, though I'm not old yet and, and still have a lot of life, Lord willing, ahead of me, I just I can't stand the ladder. I really want to be free from that stupid ladder. I want to be free from this competition that says, well, if you're up here, then you're somehow better than the people who aren't quite as high as you. And I want to be free from the... The, the comparison game to say, well, if I'm down here on the bottom rung and I look up here, well, these people, well, you know, that's really where I need to get because then I'd have some value. Then I'd have some worth. Then I might actually be somebody. I can't stand the ladder. I, I would venture to say that whether you are retired or in the middle of your work life or at the beginning or wherever you are, involved in some sport or education or whatever you're doing, that if, you, if you're honest with yourself, that regardless of how talented you may be at what you're doing, regardless of how much money you may have or, or don't have, regardless of, of where you live or whatever, when you get to your core, there's got to be something about you that says, you know what, if the ladder is all that there is, then I don't want it. it. Really, when it comes down to it, you were created for something more than the ladder. Now, understand this, that sometimes we'll read into this and say, well, the pastor thinks we all just ought to stay on the bottom rung and not do anything good for ourselves. That's not even the point. Don't read anything in. I'm just saying that the ladder, according to God's Word we'll look at today, is not our measure of greatness. It's not our measure of true success. And, and the words that we'll look at today from Jesus, I think, are particularly challenging because it, it eliminates the ladder. The ladder brings comfort because we know where we stand. The latter gives us some easy way to measure where we are. And when Jesus today, as we'll see, eliminates that, it puts us into a different sort of standing, and we've really got to now be accountable to God in a different way. And so wherever you find yourself on the ladder today, I'm not asking you to jump off. I'm not asking you to say, well, if you happen to be way, way up here and you're very successful in what you're doing, that all of you, you, you just ought to sell everything you own and give it all away. Jesus asked one person to do that. Just understand that. There was only one in the Bible. But what I am asking you to do is consider, as we look at the words of Jesus today, that the latter may not really be what God wants us to measure ourselves by. Last week we started a series called Overflow, based upon the scripture in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, that, that where Jesus said that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, or the mouth speaks from what's in your heart. We don't need a verse to know this is true, but I'm thankful that God put it in there. We know that whatever's inside of you is eventually going to come out. You probably had an experience like that this week, that you said or did or thought or whatever, something, and it just came out and you just think, oh. I really wish I hadn't said that. Or where did that come from? Or, you know, I've been waiting to say that for a long time. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I didn't hold back anymore. You've been there? And we just, all of a sudden, something just comes out. And Jesus made it clear that what's in your heart will eventually overflow. And so what was true when Jesus said it about the Pharisees is obviously true for us, and it's also true for Jesus. 
as we lead up to Easter over the next few weeks, what we're looking at are the words that Jesus said during the last week before his crucifixion, and then subsequently those 40 days or so after his resurrection. What did he say? Because if we can learn what he said, we'll realize what was in his heart that overflowed and came out. And if we can understand his heart, then we can understand his will for our lives. And young, old, or in between, we all want to know, what does God want for me? What's God's will for me right now and for tomorrow? What does he want? And so if we can learn his words and understand that, we'll get to see his heart. We get to see his heart. We understand his will. And so we're going to look at some words today, as I said, that I think are particularly challenging and an example that Jesus gave that if we will apply it, that we'll be like Jesus. That is our mandate as believers in Christ, is to be like Him. Not just to be good people and to show up at church and to do all the right things and dress the right way, but to be like Him. We'll learn today what He really wants and His measure for greatness. So if you got your Bible... I'd like for you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John's over in the New Testament. If you don't know anything about the Bible, don't let that stop you. Go to the table of contents if you've got one. Look up the book of John. And if you don't have a Bible or didn't bring one with you, the the verses for the most part will be on the screen behind me when we get to them. I want us to look, first of all, and you'll see there on the back of your bulletin if you like to follow along and take some notes You'll see that we're going to first look at his words and then look at how that reflects his heart and then what that says about his will. And so the words that I want us to look at are found in John chapter 13, verse 12. Follow along here and it says, When Jesus had washed their feet, he put on his robe, he reclined again, and he said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? Do you know what I have done for you? These are the words of Jesus that I want us to focus on and sort of unpack and figure out what was he saying here. Why is it that he would ask them, do you know what I have done for you? What is it that he did for them? The first part of verse 12 tells us, when he had washed their feet. So in in this setting, we're going to have an experience where Jesus will wash the feet of the disciples. Now, if that freaks you out, just follow along for a little bit. Okay, some of you are ready to leave now because you think that's gross, but just follow along. He washed their feet, and and he says, Do you know what I've done for you? It would seem obvious that, well, yeah, he washed our feet, but he's got something behind it. And so I want us to to sort of examine what it is and how he went about this and pick apart a little bit uh, three things about what he did for them. First of all was that he didn't have to. I love the first part of this chapter. In the first few verses, I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it has so much, I think, so much behind it. Do you know what I've done for you? He didn't have to do what he had just done for them. Look at the first few verses. Look at verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the times of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. So we we know this is part of the the plan here. This is what's going to happen. Judas has already, you know, had it put in his heart. I'm going to betray Jesus and so on. So just kind of get an idea of what's going on. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Read that one again. Jesus knew that the Father... God himself had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, 
And then he was going back to God. Here's the moment. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. And he has the power to do anything he wants to do. Think about that for just a second as it relates to the fact that he already knows what's, what's coming. He knows his crucifixion is drawing near. In fact, this is most people would agree that this is Thursday night before the Friday crucifixion. He's having the Last Supper with his disciples. And he already knows what's going to happen. Everything had been given into his hands. Verse 4, So he got up, put on his royal robe, took his scepter in hand, and demanded that the disciples bow and worship him. That's, not, that's the wrong version, isn't it? That, your version doesn't say that, does it? Hmm. You know, reading it again, my version doesn't say that either. But I tell you, in that moment... If I'm Jesus, the Bible probably reads that way. In that moment, if I'm Him, and I can do anything I want to do, and anything that I just think, you know what, this is my last time to get some recognition. I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. You know what? I'm putting on a royal robe because I'm the king. And you know, before they had the chance to make fun of me and and spit on me and put a crown of thorns on me, I'm taking my royal scepter in my hand. And you know what? All of you, all 12 of you, even you, Judas, I know what you're going to do. All 12 of you, bow down. Worship me one last time. Because tomorrow it ain't going to happen like that. If I'm writing this story, if I'm the star of the story, things might turn out a little bit different. Maybe you're the same way or maybe you're a little more like Jesus than I am maybe, but golly, wouldn't it be tough? In that moment, you're the most powerful person in the world. Nothing is beyond your control. Jesus is not an innocent victim here. He willfully chooses what's going to happen. What would you do? Verse 4 actually says this. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. This wasn't some prayer that he prayed for them. He didn't say, guys, look, I know that it's going to get tough for you over the next day or two. I know this is going to be hard for you to believe in me because I'm going to be crucified. I know there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say a lot of bad things, and you're going to sort of be caught up in it. So let's huddle up. Let me pray for you because I know it's going to get hard. This wasn't some teaching on the side of a mountain that he said, let me speak to the multitudes one last time and tell them all that I need to tell them. This was something that was very intimate and, and very secretive in, in a sense. And when he was the most powerful person in the room, in this moment where he could have done anything, he operated with humility and in the interest of others. And the Bible says that he, he took off his outer garment and he, and he laid it aside. And instead of taking a royal robe, the Bible says he took a towel. In modern times, that would be like an apron. And he says he, the Bible says he, he tied it around himself. I mean, set the scene for just a second. And Jesus himself, who could have at that moment, and again, if I'm writing a story, angels are coming down. Thousands of them. Here we go. I'm taking over. Takes off his outer garment and lays it to the side. Nothing's going to hinder him from doing what he needs to do. Ties an apron around his waist, and he gets down on his knees. And instead of taking a a royal scepter, he took a basin of water. And instead of demanding that they 
bow down and worship Him. He's on His knees washing their feet. And the most impressive thing to me of that whole deal is He didn't have to. He, 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 he knew what was going to happen. And He could have done anything He wanted. And in the moment when He knew that Judas would betray Him, that Peter, one of his closest friends, would claim three times he didn't even know who he was. Violently denying that he even knew Jesus. And all the rest of them would run away in fear because they didn't want to happen to them what was going to happen to him. In that moment, he washed their feet. We could stop there today and, and, and be absolutely, I think, impressed and awed and just humbled at the fact of who Jesus is. I, well, I mean, what an incredible God we serve. And what an incredible Savior we have that in the moment when He could have done anything, when He could have stopped the whole deal, when He could have made those guys bow down and worship Him, He was the one who bowed down and washed their feet. He didn't have to do it. Not only did He not have to do it, but it was completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. Picture yourself there for just a second. And the awkward moment that happens when Jesus gets up. And you think, well, maybe he's going to teach us something here. Maybe he's got something to say. You know, he's been hinting toward the fact that something about him dying and all this. I don't know, maybe he's going to tell us something in particular. And think of the awkward moment when Jesus takes off that outer garment, puts the apron on, and begins to wash people's feet. Peter, you've got to love Peter. He just said what everybody was thinking. Verse 6 Jesus, it says, he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, Peter's great. You know, you got, I mean, he, he takes a bad rap all the time in the, in the Gospels because he, he sank in the water, but he walked on the water. That's got to be pretty cool. I mean, you know, he was the guy who, who Jesus, you know, said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, you know, at least he cared about Jesus enough to hang around. I mean, at least he was following him. He says, you know, come on, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, verse 7, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterwards you'll know. And Peter again, you, you will never wash my feet, ever. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. This was something completely unexpected. It, it, the washing of feet was typically done either by the person themselves, as far as when they walked into a home, the host may have some water, and you would wash your own feet, or done by the lowest of slaves. I mean, this was not something that a superior did for an inferior. This was not someone of higher rank that would typically do this for someone of lower rank. So when Jesus, their Lord and Master, gets up, imagine the, the looks on their faces like, what's he doing? Does he not understand who he is? He's the Messiah. We've all told him. I mean, he, he, what, what's he doing? It was completely unexpected. Peter's response, as I said, probably just represented what everybody else was thinking. No. You're not going to wash my feet. This is wrong. This is backwards. Something is, is wrong about this. Jesus was not supposed to demean himself in this way by washing their feet. For a superior to wash the feet of an inferior was unheard of in both the Roman and Jewish societies. This wasn't done anywhere. I mean, think about it. It'd be like the, the CEO of a billion-dollar corporation at night sweeping the floors or, or getting coffee for everybody. Or, or making all the copies himself. I mean, all the things that people do for him, he, he now turns around and does for everybody else. I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. You'd go to the guy and say, look, we've we got people that do this. 
It's okay. You go sit in your office. You make big-time decisions. You tell us all what to do. We'll take care of your coffee. Seriously, we'll, we'll take care of it. I'll make the copies for you. Isn't that the way it works? Typically, the people that are higher up don't, don't serve the people that are lower. If you're way up on the ladder, it's just the way that it works. You've got people that do things for you. So, so this was completely unexpected when Jesus did this. This was not what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah who was going to wash their feet. They wanted somebody to rule and to put the Jews back in charge. And one side note in all this, do you know what I have done for you? One side note is this, that no one wanted to be the least. No one in that group wanted to be the least. They, they all waited around. Imagine them walking into this upper room. No servant there because this is sort of a secretive meeting because his crucifixion wasn't supposed to happen until the next day. And so they all walk in and, and they kind of look around and, and their feet had gotten dirty from walking on those dusty roads. And, and so they enter this room and they kind of look at each other thinking, okay, what are we supposed to do? There's no servant here to wash our feet. And, and, and the disciples would not volunteer to, to wash each other's feet because that would admit that somehow I'm inferior to you. And if you know the disciples, they weren't about to admit any of that. They were human just like us. They didn't want to take a step down on the ladder. They were all trying to climb the ladder, get closer to Jesus, be part of the inner circle, one day rule with Jesus in heaven, all that kind of stuff. And so they weren't about to admit it. I mean, they would have been happy to wash the Lord's feet. I mean, think about it. What an honor that would be to wash the feet of Jesus Christ in front of everybody else. I was the one chosen to wash the feet of Jesus. Anybody else get picked? Nope, and they're clean, so there's nothing else left to do. I washed his feet. We, we'd all be happy if we were chosen for some spectacular service to Jesus in front of everybody else. But they weren't about to wash each other's feet. They were okay with being inferior to the Lord, but, you know, they, they didn't want to be inferior to anybody else, and nobody wanted to be the least. You know, in our lives, I think it's true that we realize that very few of us will get to the top of the ladder. Very few of us are going to be the greatest but nobody wants to be the least. Nobody. I mean, we, we may realize, you know, I can climb up, I can get a little bit, maybe get this high. I may not be able to get all the way up, but I'm just glad I'm not at the bottom. You know, I'm just glad I'm not that guy. Goodness, I feel sorry for him. He's way down at the bottom of the ladder. He doesn't seem to have anything going for him. Thank God I'm not that guy. Now, we certainly need to count our blessings and be thankful for what we have, but I'm talking about an attitude of the heart. Not what you have and what you don't have. The disciples knew they weren't the greatest. They knew they weren't Jesus, but none of them wanted to be the least and wash each other's feet. And so his words reveal then his heart. And here's what his heart was screaming. Here's the lesson, here's the impression they had to give that true greatness is found in humble service. True greatness is found in humble service. This was no miracle to demonstrate His power. This was, this was just Jesus waiting for the right moment to prove a point and to teach them an unforgettable lesson, to burn the image into their minds of what He was really all about, to help them understand that it wasn't about Him standing on top of the ladder and screaming and doing what He had the right to do. What He really came for was to give up his rights and to serve other people. True greatness is found in humble service. 
They entered this room, Luke records in his gospel, that on the way to this meeting, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. This was something they they did for three years leading up to his crucifixion. Constantly, well, I'm a little bit better than you. Well, you know, I mean, Peter, James, and John, I mean, they were in the inner circle. James and John were called the sons of thunder. Peter was nicknamed Cephas. They had nicknames. They were in. You get a nickname, you're in. You know, that's just the way it is. I mean, the other guys didn't have nicknames. You know, these guys were in. We're arguing about who's the greatest. They even asked Jesus, can I sit on your right? Can I sit on your left? I mean, what kind of position do I get here? Jesus, knowing all of that, knowing their hearts, took a towel and a basin of water and completely redefined greatness for them. Greatness was not going to be based anymore on the ladder. Greatness was based on humble service. Look at John chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 13 and verse 13. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and this is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. He says, you know, I'm the Lord. I am your teacher, your master. But here's what I've done. Do you want to know what true greatness is? That's it. And Jesus uh, sort of gives us a hint toward what this humble service is to be. And and I want you to know that that when he instituted this deal of, of washing feet... This was not to be a new ordinance for the church equal with baptism and the Lord's Supper. So don't freak out. You're not going to have your feet washed before you leave today. Some of you probably have a... There is an actual potophobia, which is the fear of feet. And so in my research this week, I came across that, which is really interesting. Some of you, you know, kind of, you know, you just see the word feet. You're okay with yours, maybe a baby's feet, but not anybody else's. You know, it's just, that's just disgusting to you. But, so we're not going to do that, so Relax. But what he, was, what he was laying out was, was a clear example for us to follow. And he wanted us to understand what true service was all about. I, I want to give you just sort of a compare, compare and contrast. Uh, you don't have to write all this stuff down. It's not going to be on your, on your outline or anything like that. But just to think about this as I, as I read these to you, what the difference between self-righteous service, which is sort of a veiled attempt to get some credit and some, some spotlight on us, and yeah, I'll do these things, but you know, it really makes me look better if I do these, so I kind of need to do that stuff. So it kind of helps me climb the ladder, kind of helps me take a step up. And then what really is true service? Think about this stuff. Self-righteous service comes through human effort, which is always calculating and scheming how to render the service. But true service comes from a genuine relationship with Jesus and you serve out of promptings. You don't have to step back every single time and calculate and figure out and all that stuff. When the Lord prompts you to do something, you just do it. And there are certainly times when organization and planning and all is needed. Don't read into it. But at the same time, you see a need, you just meet it. Self-righteous service is impressed only with the big deal, which means it must be large and impressive. I have to admit that in many churches across our country and across our world, I think a lot of times we convince our people that it's only service if lots and lots of people show up. It's only important if we have lots and lots of money that goes behind it. But true service finds it impossible to distinguish between the small and the large service. It just welcomes all opportunities. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be a big event at church. It doesn't have to be something going on. You just serve. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. It needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort. But true service rests contented in hiddenness. It doesn't fear the lights and the blare of attention, but it doesn't seek them either. Where are you right there? I'll tell you what, this one sort of arrested me this week. 
Do I really serve contented in hiddenness? You know what? If nobody ever finds out, I'd still do these things. If nobody ever says thank you, I'd still do that. If nobody ever recognizes my hard work, that's what I'd still do. Or somewhere in there, do I have to have that recognition? Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we should not recognize when somebody does something. But it's about our heart. Would we serve if those things were not a part of it, those external rewards? Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results and eagerly waits to see if the person served will reciprocate or turn it around in kind. True service is free from the need to calculate results and just delights in the service itself. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve, but true service is indiscriminate in its ministry and just serves everybody. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims and can serve only when there's a feeling, or I feel like it, but true service ministers simply and faithfully because there is a need, not based on feeling like it. Self-righteous service is temporary, doesn't last long, but true service is a lifestyle, an ingrained pattern of living. And self-righteous service ultimately fractures community among people. It centers on the glorification of the individual, whereas true service builds community and is for the greater good. When Jesus, out of his heart, said, Do you know what I've done for you? And demonstrated to them that true greatness is found in humble service. He's talking about true service instead of that self-righteous stuff. And so his words reveal his heart, which ultimately then reveal his will. I want you to look at John chapter 13, verse 15. Jesus said this, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. His will, you also should do just as I have done for you. We are not greater than him. Verse 16 says, I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent them. So if Jesus himself, if our Lord, our teacher, our master, our savior, if he set the example of doing these little things, humble service, who are we to choose a lifestyle to do anything but that? As I said, this is one of the more difficult things for us because our world tells us, climb the ladder. Do all you can to take a step up. Climb, 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 climb. Jesus says, you know what? Even if you're climbing the ladder, true greatness is still only found in humble service. And you ought to follow my example, he says. Our lives have to be marked by humble service that just flows out of a heart of genuine love and and a heart that knows and appreciates God's forgiveness. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you know what I've done to your dirty feet? I've washed them, I've cleaned them up. You ought to be actively doing for those polluted and dirty souls and lives you see around them. Wash them. Be about serving them for the purpose of washing them. I want to wrap up today by giving you some some just small examples. And and, and these are not going to be real, real specific in the sense that, well, this is what you ought to do and you ought not to do this because I don't want to get legalistic with this stuff and somehow now... We're climbing the ladder of, well, I did this and I did that, and now we're all back on the ladder again. That's not what I'm going for. But let me give you some examples of just service. You say, okay, well, that, that's great. I know his will is for me to follow his example. What can I do? I understand if I'm going to be like Jesus, then that's what I, I need to have an apron instead of the robe, and I need, to, you know, I need to have a basin instead of the scepter, and I need to be serving instead of asking people to do things that, you know, that, that, like worship and bow down. And so what do I do? 
I came across just a, a short list here of just some examples of service. The service of small things. I had a conversation with a person this week, and I said, you know, the truth is, it's the, the small things mean the most. In your life, is that not true? Somebody can do something great and big for you, but it's those people that every single day are just, just little small things. It's the people you know can count on for the small things in life, the service of small things. And the, 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 pro, the problem with this is it'll cost us some time. It's going to feel like an interruption. You ever had one of those moments when you think, golly, I just, that person called again, and they need something else. You know, or I just ran across this person the other day, you know, and, and uh, you know, I had to stop and talk with them for 30 minutes. I mean, are you kidding? It's just another interruption. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that the, those, those things may seem like interruptions, but often they're opportunities from God to, to serve someone in a very specific and meaningful way. And, and I came across a guy who was writing about this this week, and he said, those people who constantly see everything as an interruption or time out of their day or, or time wasted probably take themselves, their work, and their lives way too seriously. Well, I'm guilty of that. He, he sort of stopped me in my tracks on that one. Of What do I see as an interruption? Am I willing to just serve in the small things? The service of guarding the reputation of other people. You may say, well, this stuff isn't something I can actually go out and do with my hands. No, it's more about your heart. Guarding the reputation. Saying something to correct a false statement about somebody or just not saying anything at all. Something your mom taught you. You don't have anything good to say. Don't say anything. Guarding the reputation. There's also the service of being served. Just humbling yourself to say, you know what? This is somebody else's opportunity to serve, and I'm going to let them. I'm not going to try to seek it out all the time to be served, but if somebody's going to serve me, I'm going to be humble enough to let them. There's the service of common courtesy. We watch these videos each week about different people who are missionaries in different parts of our country, our continent, maybe our world. And you know, they know, missionaries know something about common courtesy. They realize that if you're going to be heard, somebody's going to trust you, and you've got to just extend common courtesy before they're going to listen. But somehow as Christians, we, we sometimes fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and they ought to listen because i got the truth of God. But you know, in our depersonalized and computerized world, common courtesy is desperately needed. We just simply, by doing that, we're just affirming the worth and value of somebody else, and you never know how that softens them up just to hear then what you have to say. There's the service of hospitality. Some of you are great at this. Just open your home up. doesn't have to be anything fancy. doesn't have to be anything spectacular. Just say, you know what? We just want to have you over. We just, our, our home is open. How can we, how can we serve you? And, and it's not a big production all the time. You're just being together, talking, sharing life with each other. There's a service of listening. Some of you are great at this too. At the hospital this past week, I encountered several situations. I was there almost every day. We had a lot of people there. I encountered several situations where really all I could do was just listen. It was hard. Man, it was hard. Because I wanted to have all the right answers. I wanted to be able to help everybody and fix it all right there, but I couldn't. And so I had to discipline myself, and boy, it was hard just to listen. You don't have to have all the right answers, just compassion and patience to listen. The service of bearing the burdens of each other, just crying with those people who cry. Just putting an arm around a shoulder and saying, I'm going to help you get through this, this part of life that's hard. There's a service of encouragement. Some of you can do this this week. 
of just a word or a card or a gift to somebody who just needs to be elevated. You see people, you elevate them every chance you get. The service of celebration, just recognizing and verbalizing the achievements of others to both them and other people. Celebrating what's happening. And then finally, the service of just sharing God's Word with somebody. There are people in this room that really just need to hear from God's Word, and you may have the verse that they need to hear. There are people you work with live around, see at school and so on, that are desperate to hear the Word of God. And if they don't hear it from you, they may never hear it. There's the service of sharing God's Word. Your response to all of this and this idea that the latter is no longer our measure of success may be, yeah, you know, that's great, and Jesus did that, and the Bible says it, and okay, that's good. But you know, if I do this, if I operate out of a lifestyle of service, people are going to step on me. I'm going to become a doormat. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, you know, am I just supposed to lay down and you know what? It doesn't matter what happens to me anymore because I'm not measuring myself by the ladder. You know, the truth is you may get stepped on. But when you have chosen a lifestyle of service and you have chosen to allow yourself, if need be, in the service of others to be stepped on, who can hurt you then? If you have chosen that, Chosen the example that Jesus gave. When those guys betrayed, denied, and ran away, Jesus had chosen to be their servant already ahead of time. He chose to endure that pain. He chose to endure the sin of the world so that He could keep their best interest in mind. And that was their salvation. And they're seeing Him for who He really was. You may get stepped on. But if you have chosen a lifestyle of service, I guarantee you this, that you are never more like Jesus than when you give up your rights and choose to serve someone else. Never more like Jesus than when you're doing that. Also, it gives you freedom from the ladder. When you choose to measure yourself not by the ladder but by humble service, you're free from that. And then at any point where you find yourself on the ladder, you're still okay. If you take a step down, no big deal. If you take a step up, I know how to operate still out of humble service because the ladder no longer defines you. Instead, the apron defines you. And you're free from the games that the world plays of promotion and climbing and falling and so on. You're free then to operate the way Jesus did and receive His favor and His blessing as you wear that apron. Not only that, but the people that you once only viewed with envy and contempt, you now see them with compassion. Because you see not only their position on the ladder, but their pain that they experience. People whom you once just passed over, now you see them and you find them to be all right. I would challenge you to do this. You want to say, well, what do I do now? For one week, try this. Serve people you don't have to serve. Jesus did it when he didn't have to. If you have a job, serve the people that can't give you a raise. Serve the people that can't fire you. Serve the people you don't have to. If you're a parent, serve your children. You don't have to. Because you could threaten them and get them to do exactly what you wanted them to do. But serve your children. Husbands, serve your wives this week. I'm not going to get into the wives thing because I'm a husband. <clears throat> and that's just a lesson for me. How about that? Serve the people you don't have to. 
I mean, what if you did that this week? Just for one week, you say, you know what? The people I don't have to serve, that's who I'm going to actively seek out. I'm going to serve those people this week. And the small things, encouragement, whatever it is. Serve the people that least expect you to serve them. This was completely unexpected when Jesus did it. Somebody might fall on the floor if you did something as a humble service to them, but just see what happens. Serve the, the, the people that serve where, where no one else wants to be the least. But what if you just said, you know what, I know in this situation nobody wants to do that. So that's what I'm going to do. I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm just going to do the dirty work, so to speak. I'm going to serve where nobody wants to be the least. Serve those who are close to you in unexpected ways. Maybe so you can elevate or relieve them of something they would otherwise have to do on their own. You're going to choose the ladder or the apron. And in life, each of us will make that choice. What are we going to measure ourselves by? This ladder? Seeing how high we can get? Or no matter where we are, at the top, at the bottom, still measuring ourselves only by the apron, by humble service. I want you to imagine just for a second, if we, just us that are here today, go out into our schools, our jobs, our homes, our families, our encounters this week, and we did the stuff like Jesus did it, the world would freak because they don't expect it. Because we don't have to. Because nobody wants to be the least. They'd freak out. And then we'd have some explaining to do. There's your opportunity. What if we did that this week? What if we became known as a people, both here at Elm Grove and ultimately as followers of Jesus Christ, as people who served when we didn't have to, who did what nobody expected us to do, who served when nobody else wanted to be the least? What if? The world would freak out and we'd have to explain to them why. How can I open doors to talk to somebody about Jesus? Take the apron, get on your knees, get the basin of water, and wash feet. Serve people. Don't measure yourself by the ladder, but by the apron. I guarantee you, and I'm so looking forward to this when I fully learn this lesson, I guarantee you that being free from this stupid ladder will be one of the greatest experiences of your life. And I am, I'm, think I'm this close to really seeing how God wants that to happen. I'm on this journey with you. I want you to know that. I haven't arrived. I don't wear this apron around all the time, although it looks good, I'm sure. But, man, I want to get there. Gosh, I want to be free from that stupid ladder. I don't want that to measure me anymore. And wherever I find myself, I still want to just be a humble servant to be like Jesus. And so wherever you are this week, surprise people by serving them in unexpected and practical ways. And just watch what God does and see what kind of heart He develops in you to be like Him. In just a moment, we'll close. But I want to say this before we do. I realize that many of us, if not most, and maybe some weeks all, the people in here may say, you know what, I have already made a decision to give my life to Jesus Christ, but I realize this, that maybe not all. Jesus said to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. The only way that you can have a part with Jesus Christ is for Him to wash you clean of your sin. You can't do it yourself. Only He can do it. Only Jesus could cleanse their souls 
way down deep inside. And so if that's you today and you say, you know what, I, yeah, I can go serve people and that kind of stuff, but I'm, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, I'm not sure. I'd love to tell you how he can cleanse you, how he can wash you. Jesus took the apron and then he chose the cross. He died for your sin and for mine. Gave his life as a servant to all so that we might be able to get to God through him. And so maybe if that's you, in just a moment as Jan will play and Randy will sing, if you've got some questions about that, I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you can see me afterward. Or if you say, you know what, I've been considering maybe joining this church. I have some more questions. Who can I ask? I'd be happy to answer your questions either in a moment or right after the service. Or, you know, I just need you to pray for me. I'd be happy to do that as well. Any of our deacons and other leaders and so on would be happy to do that for you. And so today as you leave, don't leave the same as you walked in. Give your life to Jesus in such a way that the latter now, it's not your measure, but it's the apron. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for eliminating the latter, for taking an apron, for washing the feet of the disciples, for showing us what true greatness is all about and for giving us an example of how we ought to serve one another. God, I pray that you'd make us the kind of people you want us to be. Make us humble servants who freak the world out and have to explain why. And I pray that this week that we would choose to serve those we don't have to, that we'd, that we'd serve those who least expect us to do it. And God, that we'd serve where no one else wants to be the least. Put, put it very clearly in front of us how we can do that this week. God, we thank you so much for going to the cross for us. Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness of sin and for new life in you. We're made completely new, washed totally clean by you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and we'll close in a song.